Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting across the entire world, principally on two radio stations, Big Talker 106.7 FM in Wilmington, North Carolina, and Saga 960 AM out of the Peel region, Ontario, Canada. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting to you from the home studio. You can go and uh, listen to all of our previous episodes over there on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. We've got a nice little redesigned website for you, and I'm joined, as always, on the line by my trusty colleague, co-host, David Clement, who's sitting there in Toronto, Ontario. David, how goes it? Oh, it's going well. It's going well. It uh, What a week for the headlines. I mean, I, I, it felt like for those who follow the royal family or just celebrity gossip in general, it was essentially the Super Bowl. Um, and of course, I'm alluding to the infamous uh, interview with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle when she sat down with uh, Oprah Winfrey, the always uh, wise and uh, incredible interviewer. Um, I'm sure you saw that. Uh, I don't know if you watched the whole thing, but I will admit that my wife and I did sit down and watch the entire thing. And wow, there's a lot to talk about. Well, since um, I guess I'll have to ping open my uh, hard seltzer here because we're going to get into the real nitty gritty. Yes. <laughs> okay. So um, I was able to watch some clips, some part of it. So it was actually a bit difficult to figure out how to watch this. And I have to give it to the team. Um, this is where Consumer Choice Radio does the, we do the role of producers here. I want to say I got to give it to the team that was promoing this interview at CBS and Oprah's People. Uh, because like even four days before the interview, everyone knew it was going to happen. Everybody, you know, had it clued in, put it in their calendars. There are all these articles about where to watch it and when. And it, it ended up being a bit difficult. I had to sign up, use a VPN and go to CBS online or something. I don't know how you watched it, uh, but we were able to watch it. So I'm pumped and primed. And uh, some of this stuff is very interesting because it interlays with a lot of uh, just general culture at the moment. Yes. And at the times, a lot about uh, media and uh, the relationship between government and its people. So, uh, yes. yeah. All right. Well, all right. We'll dip our toes into this, David. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we have to. There's, this is just too hot off the press to not. To not so how did to, how did you guys watch it? We'll get just, into that. It was basically primetime cable here. Um, so. OK, so you were able to watch it live. Yeah. Um, Sunday. Yep. yep. But the, okay. the providers here in Canada also integrated it into the app as well. So those who had like a, a fire stick or uh, some sort of streaming device could also watch it with my understanding is in real time as it happened on as it was live uh, or live in question marks because obviously or in quotation marks because obviously it was pre-recorded. But um, yeah, I mean, where to start? I mean, I guess as a Canadian, and you'll probably have some some good insights here as um, as a a Quebecer. Um, the questions about the royal family always make me scratch my head because I'm not one of those. I, I mean, I, I'm one of you're those, not a royalist. Well, not in any traditional sense. I also realize that like the campaign to um, to separate from the monarchy would really just be for symbolism. I don't think it would drastically change how our government functions because the governor general, who's the queen's representative, despite the last one being um, 
abusive in the workplace uh, really doesn't do really doesn't do much. That's so, not even half of it. But yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, really, really doesn't do much. But um, I also know that for the Quebecois, it's an entirely different relationship. I mean, in the same way that if you followed any of the Irish press, uh, especially Irish Catholic press, they were all over this because they have um, some pretty serious and well-founded grievances with how they've been treated uh, over the centuries. Um, so for me, it's, it's just a head scratcher. I mean, it's always uncomfortable to watch essentially someone's family drama um, be aired out in public. But at the same time, it's hard to watch that interview and not have compassion for Meghan Markle because obviously she was in a pretty dark place. And it's hard, if unless you watch, I mean, some people say The Crown is sensationalized, but unless you watch shows that really dig into the inner workings of how the royal family works and operates and that kind of um, unspoken um, agreement between the royal family and its citizens and the press and all of that, it, when you hear Meghan Markle, you may not take her claim seriously, but if you dig into what it's like to actually be a royal, then it makes a little bit more sense. Um, I think the only person who didn't have any compassion for her was Pierce Morgan. Um, that obviously blew up in his face. Well, yeah, we, we can talk about that. I think it's funny that you mentioned The Crown, because when I was watching this, I only thought this is just a really dramatic, hyped promo of that show and what it'll be in two or three seasons <laughs> that's that's yeah. basically how i saw it and there, there's so much and really i would say it's at the perfect nexus of the moment this interview and i'm talking we're talking meta level here i'm not really getting into the the, the nitty-gritty just yet the, but the meta of it is you've got two celebrities you know living in la feeding chickens you know on their huge estate probably who knows what kind of mansion they have i, I think it was revealed it's like couple million tens of millions of dollars or something but two of them discussing uh, essentially being excommunicated but not really from the the crown and the royal family and it, it's a lot of this is wishy-washy and it's obviously in the context of you know here's a a brit a royal who has married an american who's speaking on an american television station and most people just don't know anything about the royal family. We don't know anything about the protocols or what the family is. So a lot of the things that are discussed and talked about, like really the only way we know about it is through the crown. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. why all of this stuff uh, related to you know the lineage and if you can be called a prince or a princess or duchess and all of this. I mean, people just kind of took their word, uh, I guess Megan's word for it. Um, yeah, I think this is a, it's a really interesting moment. I, I think in coming from Quebec, if you ask that question, yeah, there's just not much sympathy with this uh, family that's been there for a very long time. And I know there are many uh, liberals of the classical persuasion who actually are big fans of the monarchy, uh, particularly monarchies that let the people live and secure their liberties more so than uh, despotic governments. But in this case, you know, this just seems like because it's so far down the line of succession, it's just a way to, you know, spin up the family in a 21st century way. You know, yeah. I, at least from from our end, there haven't been, you know, there's been nothing new. You know, you don't see any big uh, speeches by William, who supposedly will be king one day. Uh, you do see a lot of Prince Charles. He's uh, He's been a lot in the public eye 
because of climate activism and uh, calling out deniers, and uh, he's been big on the COVID stuff. He's also yeah, I, he's also really anti-GMO, which is just not based in science whatsoever, which really bothers me. But I mean, whatever, he can have his opinion. Um, and, and it is his opinion. That's the important part is yeah. that royal family really, I guess they technically give royal decree to uh, to every bill or legislation. Yes. I get that's probably true. But really, at the end of the day, they're there to kind of be the background. And yeah. I, to, I don't know. To I, stamp legislation and essentially provide maybe some guidance, but never really to intervene. And that was my favorite part of the whole interview mm. was Oprah asking, well, your grandmother is the monarch. Like she, like, what do you mean you can't like kill a story or like there are, you have to tread lightly. And it was interesting to see Harry try and explain that they're not an they're not an absolute power. There's a very, in my opinion, kind of flimsy now social contract between the royal family and like the sovereign and its and its people. And it's a lot more complicated than, well, the, the, the queen says no, so it's no. It doesn't really work that way. So it was interesting to see him. I, I mean, that could have been an hour interview in and of itself, but it was interesting to see him try and educate Oprah on how it's not really something that that the royal family can just like lay the hammer down and say okay we're not doing this anymore um, and i i would say that you know as someone who uh, is known to uh, traffic in royal circles such as myself uh <laughs> meaning i have i have met one head sovereign uh he yes. was the he's the the sovereign prince of Liechtenstein uh, a tiny european nation uh, met him ever so briefly in Washington D.C. At, at one of the conferences that you were organizing, David. Yep. And uh, you know, made many royal mistakes. I surely didn't curtsy. Uh, I, I definitely. Um, the French speakers would know this. You're always supposed to vous vous someone, so you use the formal vous. Um, when speaking in Spanish to him, I just went right to the to the tu, you know, instead of the vos. Uh, <laughs> and which I guess I guess is a huge mistake. And didn't but, you, uh, if I remember correctly, didn't you see like the 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 kickback in his aide's face? Basically, oh no, she she was actually the ambassador of oh, Liechtenstein okay, to okay. the United States, and you could tell she was taken aback. She's like, oh no, <laughs> he used the informal, yeah. uh, <laughs> the informal tense there with the sovereign prince. And here's a guy. So their story is very interesting because in Liechtenstein, it is a ruling family. They are a monarchy. They have been there for many, many years. But they are very live, let live, and they are generally incredibly free market, uh, which you just don't see. And, you know, in their job, they're really trying to reduce the amount of power that the state has generally anyway, uh, which is definitely no initiative you see coming from Buckingham Palace. But it really it's just interesting about, you know, this modern age and monarchies, uh, where I sit in Austria, you know, we had the Habsburgs, you know, ruling for years and years and years. And, you know, they were once banished from the country, were not allowed to be here. Many of the elders um, who are still alive were actually born in Spain and Germany and um, other countries. And it's only in the past two or three decades they've been allowed to come back. And all these children and grandchildren, you know, they live in Austrian society. They they go to the stores, they shop. Uh, they're not as big of a tabloid feature as the royal family, of course, because they don't have any active power, but they still got a lot of money. <laughs> they still have, you know, a little bit of land. 
But I think this stuff is, is very fascinating, at least to uh, Americans who might be listening to our program or had watched the Oprah interview. You know, all of this is a bit strange because it all always has been the stuff of the tabloids. You know, it's Diana, it's yep. the documentaries, you know, it's not anything having to do with, you know, actual power and rule. But uh, it, was, it was definitely interesting to see this cultural moment of uh, all these people pitching in to take a, t- a side, whether it's Team Megan or I guess Team Queen. Or Team Royal Family? I don't know what the other yeah, team is. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, it was it was interesting to see American comment commentators weigh in and be like, this is so strange. Like, why do the British care so much about this family? And then the funny response also from America from an American, one of the commentators, ironically at Barstool Sports, was like, Hey guys, like we don't have a royal family, but we do all of this too. Like Kim Kardashian's divorce with Kanye West. It will dominate headlines for three or four days or something that one of the Jenners said, or like he, he basically insinuated, he's like, well, we don't have a Royal family, but we certainly have the same media circus around wealthy and powerful families. And it's more or less the same thing, um, which I thought, thought was, was interesting and likely correct. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been hilarious just to see everyone, almost like pick sides and Piers Morgan essentially ending his long run as a very popular morning show host, just because he, it it is. Yeah. It is hilarious by the way, that he's on this show called good morning Britain when he's, he's easily like one of the most detestable characters on television. And, you know, he laid his toxins on CNN on American television for a long time. And then even back over in the UK, he's getting, you know, shepherded off. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's quite the character. I mean, I remember one of my favorite tweets of his was, "My new my New Year's resolution is to continue to be insufferably right all the time and to prove all of you wrong." <laughs> it's like, whoa, Jesus. whoa, way to go there, Pierce. Yeah, <laughs> okay, buddy. Yeah, it's pretty funny, um, but yeah, we have a great show uh, this week. We have a great guest coming up. Uh, our colleague, Bill Wirtz, uh, who has written on the subject of vaccine passports. Um, so that'll be a interesting conversation. Uh, we'll be going to him shortly, uh, just after this commercial break. So stay tuned. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM and Saga 960 AM, a Greater Peel Region, Ontario, Canada. Uh, you can go and listen to some of the previous interviews that we've done with guests on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. And one of those that you may hear is with our colleague, Bill Wirtz. He's our senior policy analyst. He is the guy that you go to if you want something written, if you want something understood, and you want to figure out... What is the best take of the day? And that's uh, what Bill is all about, and that's why we have him on the program. You can also check out his weekly podcast that he does dedicated to European issues, everything in the European Union related to consumers. It's called Consumer EU, uh, right there in the middle. We'll link to that into our show notes. So, Bill, thanks so much for coming on the program, good man. What a flattering intro. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Of course. And, uh, Bill, we wanted to get you Man of the Hour on because... Uh, you're someone who is following everything related to the uh, Carol Baskin's virus case. You're you're following, you know, all the 
the different developments when it comes to vaccines, and then the, something that you caught, that this is an article in The Dispatch, uh, how vaccine passports contribute to global inequality. Uh, so if you could tell our listeners a little bit about these uh, vaccine passports, the idea of them, and then some of the concerns that you highlight in your article. So this idea is um, <clears throat> pretty much as old as the, as, the, as the conversation about COVID-19 vaccines. The question is, what happens at the start of when we start vaccinating and the first people are now immune uh, or largely depending on the, on the vaccine that they get? Um, do they get any special privileges for that? Because in a way to get out of the lockdown, many people are saying, well, as soon as I'm vaccinated, I should be able to go to bars and to travel internationally and so on, because I, I do not uh, a constituted problem, which, by the way, is still a scientific question that we need to solve, because the question of whether people who are vaccinated can still spread the virus is an entire question of its own. But um, the, the more the, the further implication are legal implications, because what you create is a two tier system in which some citizens have rights that others do not. And as far as I know, there are very few countries that are even considering the option of making vaccinations mandatory. So here's something that is not mandatory for citizens to do, but the governments are now discussing to give special privileges to those who have done it. And I mean, you know, to be honest, I mean, if you don't let people travel internationally and go to bars and so on, it, it, is, it is fairly mandatory because, I mean, at, at one point, if offices are also allowed to restrict you, you can't even go to work anymore, it becomes mandatory. And that's a conversation that we can have. Um, but the vaccine passport discussion right now is at the point where the European Union says, well, you'll get this what they call digital green certificate, uh, and now you can travel internationally. And, uh, and, and, and in my view, this makes it even harder on those who already have troubles traveling internationally uh, from, from developing nations. Well, not just developing nations, it would also apply to Canadians. Right. <laughs> our, our rollout is, is, is grossly slow. I think as of maybe yesterday, we were 42nd uh, in the world in terms of doses uh, per 100 people behind one spot behind the absolute powerhouse of Greenland, um, who has managed to vaccinate more of its population in percentage terms than we have. But I guess my question would be, at first, I was generally sympathetic to the idea because it meant that, well, once you get the vaccine, it kind of infers that some sort of normalcy can, can come back. But then at the same time, I also felt like this is, this is a solution to a problem that we will have in the very, very short term that while it is implemented would become redundant in the, in the span of nine months. So like an example would be when Israel gets to de facto herd immunity, which they will do shortly. I mean, the Israeli passport is, is, is a vaccine passport because the, the virus will be, will be for the most part eradicated in that country. Um, so it almost just seems like those who support it could have made a good argument if they were going to try and make this argument six, seven months ago, and they had the, the, the plan in place, but it's like, okay, well, you're going to create this plan, you're going to roll it out, what, in three months, and then in nine months to 12 months, the whole system is completely redundant, and then the big thing for me is, well, then does it stay, right? Right. Is, Yes. And, and, and I think and I think that's that's important to note as well, because like if you open that Pandora's box and like needing certification to travel, additional certification, by the way, 
just on a, just as a note, we've only had passports for about 100 years now, and those are some of the most falsified documents in the world. So just you know, creating an entirely new one where you have no experience whatsoever as to how to do that and create an international standard will be hugely bureaucratic, uh, by the way. So, so that, 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 of course, is, is one problem. Now, the other problem is that, uh, to me, is the inconsistency, because, you know, when we started this whole thing, it was all about flattening the curve in order to protect hospitals. So the actual narrative should be, well, if we get vaccination rates to a level that our hospitalization rates are low enough, we can reopen and we can still accept people getting coronavirus because we will have the capacity in our hospitals to treat them. That was what, how we started. Now we had sort of the narrative of like, we, we will eradicate this virus completely and nobody can get sick anymore. And in the meantime, nothing will be open. And I think, and I think that's also not where we should be because that's not a rational conversation as to how to deal with disease. Yeah, and I think, Bill, there a lot of the points that you, you know, bring up are, you know, it's not just specific to the European example. We have to think about what this means for travel in the future. And uh, one thing that you, you did not note in the article, and this is, and there's more news that has come out about this every second, but Israel does have a version of this, you know, to people to gain access to hotels and gyms and bars. Um, <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm just in my old school dystopian, you know, uh, skepticism to, to really see this happening. And I know that some points have been brought up that, you know, we do need vaccines to enter certain countries. You know, you are uh, required to prove that you have a, you know, let's say dengue fever um, vaccine to go to Indonesia or, you know, whatever malaria vaccinations if you go to some African nation. So that these kind of things exist, but there's no centralized, you know, identity document that contains your data, you know, that would allow you to enter a, a particular country. And that's not even thinking about the fact that not everybody can get vaccinated, right? You've got young kids. So what does that mean for young kids? Uh, what do you have for uh, some women who might be pregnant or breastfeeding that aren't able to get it either? And there's whole you know leagues of people uh, who live and travel and work who won't be able to get the vaccines because you know for some reason their doctors say they can't. Does that mean they're going to be barred at the border? Or anything else? Is that exactly. some of the complications that you've seen? Yeah. And and what can't be accomplished by testing? Like what what does the the passport achieve that a robust testing regime wouldn't? That's another thing. It's like, well, you want to create this passport system. It's like most of the airlines either are or or either are requiring tests whether by government mandate or by their own choice and so it's i like, think we can ask bill he's flown more than yeah. both of us combined for the yeah. past year yeah I, I i've been traveling quite a bit and all countries have different rules and make it it's it's, it's crazily complicated if you fly through the netherlands currently you both need a 72 hour old uh, a PCR test and an antigen test that you did at the airport just before flying. Exactly why you will need both of these. The Netherlands was just trying to make it as difficult for you as possible to travel. The website of the Netherlands that has the section traveling to the Netherlands just has the sentence don't travel to the Netherlands. Uh, so they made it very, because on top of these two tests, you still need to do 10 days of quarantine after you arrive. So basically, it's just like, just don't come here at all. Um, and, and yeah, as what you mentioned is absolutely true. I mean, there's certain African countries that don't even consider vaccinating. There's some countries that have expressed a, the no will at all to buy any vaccines. Now, like imagine you're a young entrepreneur and you want to get into import-export business. And as we all learned 
in the past year. You can't get a business deal over Zoom. It's just not the same thing. Some things you just close because you get a drink with the person afterwards. You already made it super difficult. And now you say, hey, on top of all the visa requirements you have from certain countries, now you want to do business and you want to go abroad in order to talk to your legal office to, to, so you get the necessary licenses and all that and find a business partner. Now you can't do that because either you didn't get a vaccine at all or, and that's also something I raised in the article, you might have gotten the wrong vaccine. Because if the European Union, for instance, doesn't approve the Sinopharm vaccine from China because it says it's not effective enough, well, now I got a vaccine in, in, my, in my country from China, and that's not valid in the EU. Do I need to get a second vaccine? Does that even work? Um, like there's, there's so many complications. And, I, and, and to me, and that's why I describe Europe and the United States by, by, by virtue of that same, and I'm pretty sure Canada you know, would apply to, to that as well, sort of these fortresses. You know, we look at this from a very America-centric or Eurocentric perspective. Now we're trying to figure this out as soon as we can. We'll always throw out a word in one of the other, one of the other government statements, like, oh, we are still considering third world countries. But no, we aren't. You know, the European Union bans exports of vaccines, even to countries that might have, have purchase agreements with these companies already. We don't allow them to export their vaccines to other countries. And we tell their citizens, yeah, yeah, probably it'll be another five years before you can travel. And I think that's just that's just irrational. Because one last thing that I also wanted to mention is the inconsistency, because you can't simultaneously say, well, don't let anyone in because the virus will spread and say, well, I'm protected, therefore I should be able to go to bars and restaurants, right? And also people traveling, like if you don't allow the foreigners, you know, those with not the right passports to travel, American citizens will still be allowed to return to the United States, no matter in what country they were. You know, you won't be able to ban the, those people from traveling back. And American citizens and Canadian citizens have the advantage, like also have the ability to choose. You know, you're not, you're not required to get vaccinated. So what happens to those people? Like imagine I'm, I'm a Canadian abroad and I want to travel back to my home country where I live and I have chosen not to get vaccinated. Now, what, what do I do? Like, do I not allow my own citizens to return? There's so many questions you go sit, here. You go sit and rot in a COVID hotel. That's <laughs> about it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill, I don't know. I don't know how well versed you are in this, but they created this uh, hotel quarantine program. It, it was originally thrown out that it was going to be like 10 days long, but now it's like with multiple tests, it's uh, I think like a maximum of three days but it comes with a price tag of about, I think, $2,500. So you have these people who are coming home. So like this poor woman, they interviewed her at the airport. She had to travel. I forget which country she traveled to. She had to travel for the funeral of a parent. So talk about like the most devastating um, reason to travel. She comes home. She can't be refused because we don't do that in Canada. Um, but she's required to stay at one of these hotels. She's charged $2,500. Of course, she tests negative all the way through. She doesn't have COVID. She didn't have it. Um, and it just seems like a huge act of symbolism to try and look it, 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 in, in many ways in similar senses to like the TSA in the United States. It's rather than security theater, it seems like COVID theater a little bit. Um, and it's just like, and uh, I mean, there was another horror story of a, of, uh, a woman in um, one of these hotels who was sexually assaulted by another person forced to stay in quarantine. So it's like, what are we doing? Why? Like this, 
Yael and I talk about cost-benefit analysis uh, on the regular. It's like, this doesn't even come close to passing a cost-benefit analysis, especially when you consider when the other, the other rules that existed where you just have to quarantine when you get home. And it's like, well, is that sufficient? I, I think you could make the argument that it is. And then overlay that with your very important point about goalpost shifting is, are we having a conversation about COVID zero? Or are we having a conversation about ensuring that our healthcare system does not dissolve and we have a, a, an Italy type scenario? And I think more often than not, especially now, if we're looking at hospitalizations and rates, it's very easy to go, okay, yes, we're going to do this, or no, we're going to do, we're not going to do this. But if we're looking at it as COVID zero, I mean, will this ever end? It just feels like at COVID with COVID zero is the argument. It feels like you could just forever extend a lot of these measures. And for me, I mean, I've been home. It's going to be a year. It'll be the year anniversary shortly of when I looked at one of my good friends at a, at a, a baby shower and said that it will blow over in a couple of weeks. Uh, how wrong was I? But I can't imagine having this conversation again in nine months or 12 months and being like, well, we don't have rates at zero, so I can't go out to a restaurant properly, or are we going to have Christmas? Like it just, that may, that's an incredibly depressing forecast. It's, it's uh, not looking good, but uh, we've been speaking with Bill Vietz, who's our senior policy analyst here at the Consumer Choice Center, host of the Consumer Podcast. Uh, Bill, can you, uh, can you stay on a little bit? Maybe we'll bring you on in uh, section three. Absolutely. All right, perfect. So we'll bring Bill back in for our third segment. Stay tuned here to Consumer Choice Radio, consumerchoiceradio.com. Mind is putting me on. We are back on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, we've got uh, our colleague Bill Vietz here, who's uh, he's agreed to sit in. This is a typical radio gimmick that you do. It's like, can you can you hold on after the break? And uh, thanks for doing that, Bill. So uh, we've got a couple other topics to add to this. Uh, that we hit the Royals in the first part. Talked about those vaccine passports there in our second segment with Bill. Now David's coming to the table. He's got plenty of uh, news stories and arguments he wants to bring up. So David, let's uh, hit us with your best shot here. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I mean, Yael, you were just, uh, you were just interviewed, uh, en Francais, uh, about plastics. We've talked about plastics uh, a fair amount, but Bill, I know you've also written about plastics in, in the EU. So the backstory there is yet another community is looking to ban single use plastic grocery bags. And this gets sold as a viable solution to the issue of plastic waste or, uh, climate change. And I, most of the data just suggests that that's not the case. I mean, um, you look at, I mean, I, I sound like a broken record a little bit because I talk about Denmark all the time, but the, the Denmark's environment ministry looked at this. They said that paper bag alternatives have to be reused something like 43 times in order to have the same in, uh, environmental impact as a plastic bag. And everybody knows you're not going to use a paper bag uh, that many times. And so, Bill, I'd love to hear your take on these plastic bans, maybe where you've seen them in Europe, what the outcomes have been, um, just maybe to forecast for some of our listeners who, uh, whether on both sides of the border, Canadian and American, who are kind of irritated about this mission creep 
that's uh, that's now targeted plastics. Uh, so in Europe, we've just uh, uh, we had we had multiple proposals to ban uh, uh, single-use plastic items. So this is like the forks and spoons and and and, and you know plates and all of that. And uh, and and we've moved far on this. And we also have this uh, this new tax. This is an EU tax on plastic packaging as well. So this is where member states will be rated on how much plastic packaging they uh, produce per year and use per year, and then they will be taxed. So then the member states have the ability to decide how they want to you know, tax this uh, overall. Um, and, and, I, and, I think, and I think the result has been similar to what you've been, been describing. You know, like I, you know, if you just take the example of like um, the, 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 the bags as, as you know, using it for disposal, for instance. You know, my grandmother, she would use these uh, uh, these these single-use plastic bags in order to dispose of her uh, of, of, of her of her trash, and uh, and now that she doesn't get these anymore, uh, she she buys the actual like bin bags. And when you look at the environmental impacts of these bin bags, they're far worse than the single-use bags that they knew that we just banned. So overall, I just see I just see very much what's what's happening here, and I think. You know, if, if, if other countries want to consider doing this, um, they should look at the European example. And uh, we, we should look at this uh, from, from the perspective of data. And, you know, if the, if, the, if the paper bag is better for the environment, I'm happy to say, hey, that's, this is how it works. But if you actually analyze the data, then, 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 choosing, then choosing plastic is actually not that bad of an idea. Yeah, and I think this is always couched in the, you know, look at us, we're taking action. You know, we're actually doing something. We're uh, banning the single-use plastics at the city council level in uh, New Brunswick, is the example David was talking about. And all of this is always just, it's just feel-good measures, you know, because what does this mean for the cities outside of it? Are they still going to do this? And there are so many exemptions to these rules. It's just insane uh, to really see that, for some reason, the the moral position becomes that of just banning products outright, never thinking about the costs, never thinking about effectiveness, and never thinking about the signal that you send to people who are supposed to actually bring us out of this mess. It's not any city council in the US, Canada, or any municipal council in the European Union that is ever going to come up with an alternative to plastic. It just isn't. What is going to happen is entrepreneurs are going to look at the market. They're going to say, all right, here's a prime example where we can disrupt this. You know, we can use some kind of algae and mix it together with fusion and hydrogen and create an awesome alternative that's better and lighter and recyclable. But it's never going to be done at the governmental level. And it's just unfortunate that those who introduce these bans, much like the Green New Deal in the U.S. or the New Green Deal in Europe or whatever it's called, the people who want to just use force and want to ban and restrict are seen as the heroes and the innovators that are actually going to bring forth that alternative are just not even a part of the conversation, not even thought about in that and, realm. Yeah. And Yael, I mean, the way you describe it for our listeners, some people may be listening to that and being like, wow, that doesn't exist anymore. Or like that's maybe some future innovation that that is not out yet, except that it is. Um, there are entirely new product classes of PHA plastics. I can't get into the chemistry of how they're made because it's complicated and that's well beyond my level of expertise. But these things are almost entirely biodegradable to the point where you can actually home compost them. 
So a, a lot of a lot of North Americans have a compost bin. You can actually take these styrofoam cups and containers and what have you, and they actually compost um, at home. And so there's an example of someone thinking, how do we do this better? Uh, how do we create a more environmentally advantageous product? They go ahead and do it. And that you have these lazy legislators who are like, no, all bad, ban it. I don't, I don't care about your innovation. We don't solve problems here. We just ban things. Um, so really irritating from, from a consumer's perspective. Um, one, other, one other issue, I mean, it's also on the environment is the idea of carbon tariffs. Um, so I will have a article coming out uh, with, with a little bit of uh, economic forecasting on the cost. So Trudeau and Biden um, have hinted that they're going to look at a carbon tariff or carbon adjustment is the uh, more astute way they describe it. Um, essentially taxing goods from countries that don't have our levels of environmental protection. And it gets sold as a, as a real viable policy to, to curb climate change. But really what it does is it just punishes the developing world for their exports. Um, really, really unfair. And at the end of the day, this is something a lot of people don't realize, is that tariffs are inflated costs paid, by for, domestic, paid for by domestic consumers. And so it means that everything we get from abroad from these countries will go up in price. Um, it's protectionist. It protects domestic industry against competition. It really is a, a policy nightmare or what I call policy mischief. Um, and Bill, I know that uh, Boris Johnson has looked at this in the EU. I know the EU, or sorry, Boris Johnson has looked at this in the UK. The EU is kicking around this idea. What's your take on the idea of carbon adjustments? Uh, yeah, so we have a we have a similar proposal out there, um, and, and interestingly, the European Union is considering it as part of funding the 700 billion euros we just took up in debt in order to fund the COVID-19 recovery. So this is also like we need to consider that politicians don't just raise taxes out of the, the reasons that they pretend, but it's also to kind of fix the deficit. Um, but so the carbon border adjustment, so the European Union has similar problems uh, on these environmental issues. The politicians say, well, there's all these rules. And then the industry, local industry says, well, we're punished by all these environmental rules. So what we're going to do is we're going to produce in countries that we can legally import from. So this happens in the EU. You go to Belarus, you go to Ukraine, uh, you go to Russia, and then you bring it back in. And so in order to, so, so the companies that, that, that lobby for these rules, they're coming from a good place. They're saying, well, we are unfairly a disadvantage compared to competitors that produce abroad and we, we're shipping all the, the jobs away but they should be mad at the environmental rules and they shouldn't be mad at the foreign competition or the foreign producers um so 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 now they 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 say one well, this is this is very often this is industry actually local industry arguing for this um by saying well we should have these 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 are effectively import tariffs and it's interesting how when donald trump used to say well, we need protectionism in order to protect our American uh, uh, industry. It was like, well, this is backwards protectionism. This is nationalism. This is this America first, blah, blah, blah. And, and now when you do it and you justify it by saying, well, this is about environmental rules and you should buy local, you should buy French, German, Polish, whatever. Now it's fine because you're coming, you're coming from it from an environmental perspective. So actually all Donald Trump needed to do is go to the G20 and say, well, I'm doing all of this for the environment. I'm doing the exact same policies just for the environment. And it would have been, would have been great. So we have the exact same conversation in Europe. And it's really bad because if, you, if you're a country trying to get 
to a place where you can actually invest into better technologies. If you want to invest in renewables, if you want to invest in nuclear power, you need the like you need the economic productivity. And for that to get that off the ground, you need to export. So, you know, you can't get off the ground if the European Union says, well, the only thing you can do is to develop your country is the foreign aid we give you, because we're not allowing you to bring anything to sell anything to us. And uh, we don't want you to burn any fossil fuels either, even though we did it for the longest time. You know, I, I, I always consider this to be very, it comes from such a privileged perspective. You know, it's a bit like the, the whole uh, rainforest it, conversation in the Amazon. A little bit of, yeah, a little bit of climate colonialism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like when we had the whole discussion about the Amazon rainforest in, in Brazil, and if you, if you take a plane and you fly over Brazil, it's mostly green. Like the entire country is mostly green. If you fly over large parts of Canada, uh, uh, the US, and this is specifically true for Europe, by the way, if you fly over Germany today, you won't see that much forest. Most of that is agricultural land. So what we've been doing is that we've gotten rid of most of our, our woods and our greens, and we use all of it intensely for agriculture, and we became the dominant economic powers in the world by virtue of doing that. And now that we settled in and decided for the last 20 years that now we very much care for the environment, now everybody has to has to adapt to that. And whether this keeps people in poverty or not, we don't particularly care. My thing is, if you really want to do something about this problem, we see is the most environmentally friendly countries are also the richest ones. If you, if you increase economic prosperity, you also give people the tools in order to protect the environment. Because if you have the facilities to recycle, if you have the facilities to to, to dispose of waste correctly, you pollute less. If you have the ability to buy more innovative cars or more innovative buses and so on, you will do it. So for that, you need the resources, you, you need the economic performance. I love that, Bill. And it's, it's a point that's never really brought up. And I know there's always pressure that's put upon uh, various political leaders to deliver on climate promises. And I think with the carbon stuff, it, it's just insane that we're talking about pricing carbon generally. Because we're talking about carbon dioxide outputs, not just carbon. I mean, poor carbon miners. <laughs> they thought they got into this and they were going to make a killing and they're just getting taxed, you know, from every Yahoo cranny. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's unfortunate. And it is true. It's the developing world uh, versus the developed world. And uh, a lot of this is kind of cloak and dagger. We're not really seeing it. It's put up in nice language and it's just kind of excused. We're not going to see much criticism. Um, but yet I haven't seen the great, you know, Nobel Prize winning economist who has put forward the best climate plan. Um, it just hasn't happened. A lot of this is pushed by environmentalists who are not very, uh, we'll say, economically minded, nor understand that things have costs <laughs> in the short and well, long term. And, and on those costs, I mean, Bill, you mentioned Donald Trump. Everyone had this right the appropriate response to Donald Trump's tariffs was this is nonsense. And I'll give our listeners a case study. So he targeted washing machines. And it's a niche subject, but he targeted washing machines. It increased the price on washing machines in the US by 12%. And he justified it by saying, well, it protects American jobs. Well, it did. It created 1,800 jobs. But American consumers paid $1.56 billion, with a B, in extra costs for these washing machines. And so for every job that was created by Trump's tariffs on washing machines, it cost U.S. consumers over 800,000 
per job. Talk, talk about and getting so, washed up. This is bad. All right. Yeah. All right. We got to say goodbye to our guest, Bill Wietz. He's the host of the Consumer Podcast, our colleague at Consumer Choice Center. Bill, thank you so much, good man, for coming on the radio program. Thank you for having me. All the best. And uh, that pretty much does it for us, David. I know we've got uh, plenty of your articles, my articles to share. Uh, we'll put those in the show notes. We'll have a good time. And uh, thanks to Bill again for coming on. And uh, yeah, look forward to a good, uh, good conversation next week. Yeah, until next week, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in. does it for consumer choice radio thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives check with consumer choice radio for much more consumer choice radio hosted by yael asoski and myself david clement is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news interviews and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world focusing on innovation tech regulatory policy and science Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.
through COVID-19. Hallelujah.